This week on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast, two-time NBA champ Lamar Odom. I'm told my doctors just say I'm like a welcome miracle. The former Los Angeles Laker and ex-husband of Khloe Kardashian has had a life marred by tragedy from being on the brink of death. How much credit do you give to Khloe? I can't really give her any of God's credit. To struggling with drug and sex addictions. Just even it's embarrassing just talking to you about it right now. When I sat down with Odom in December 2019, his then fiance was helping him combat those addictions. They've since split with both sides calling the relationship toxic. But no matter what the challenge might be, Odom's doing his best to turn difficulties into lessons of triumph to inspire others. I think that's important for everyone to you know, find that voice to um, speak their truth. We began our chat with topics on the court as Odom reminisced about a few of the big names he rubbed elbows with throughout his career. Starting with talking about basketball, I wanted to bring up some notable names and kind of go from there. Um, the first one being actually Ron Artest. There was an interesting story, I, I think, involving the two of you. He actually, t tell about the uh, melee that he actually prevented you from getting in uh, back in the day and what you really respect about him. Oh, you must be talking about the time where I got elbowed in my face in the, in the AAU game. The dude elbowed me really, as far as I can remember, it, like really caught me really good. And I, didn't, I didn't know if it was on purpose or if it was by mistake. I still kind of got the mark right here in my face. And as I'm trying to like, like get it together, all I hear is somebody like just walk into the court and they screaming, yo, what you do to my man, yo? <laughs> so I guess he came from like two courts over. If I remember when he caught me, you could hear like the I think like the whole gym just kind of stopped. But that was one of my crazy Ron Artest stories. But Ron, he had my back though. Ron is very loyal. And this is after you guys, you weren't sure kind of where you stood with him. Yeah, yeah, right? because you know, because of his persona, his heart, he's difficult to figure out. But once he's on your side, uh, he's a rider. And um, I'm glad ever since then he's been on my side. Pat Riley, um, from what I understand, you were kind of always interested in working with him, had a lot of respect for him, the Basketball Hall of Famer who runs the Miami Heat organization. He had, you know, referred to you as the next Magic Johnson, Magic being somebody you really respect as well. And so you signed with the Heat. Uh, you were getting ready to leave to head to the airport to fly back to L.A. What does Pat say to you? Well, as soon as I, I met with them, like, I kind of knew that it was the place for me. Why? Because of like the, the family atmosphere that they make down there. At that point in my career, I, I knew that I needed to uh, work hard. And I, I knew down in Miami that they, that was um, part of their culture. You were going to be flying back to LA and Pat's like, what do you mean? You need to be a practice yeah, the next morning. You gotta be here. And um you're gonna have to put all in. And I was ready to to put all in for the Miami Heat at that point in my career. 
What do you think you learned from Riley? If you put in the work, if you got a inch of talent, you're gonna stretch it out to a yard, get all he can out of you, however long he's gonna have you. I tell people, when he gave me that, that money, he said, you know, Lamar, I'm gonna give you this money, but you, um, the only way I'm gonna give it to you, you gotta move your family down here. That was a well, out, well thought out plan from him. He didn't probably want, you know, young Lamar over to have all that money and just have free reign and do whatever I want at any given time. So I was grateful for that. When you learned about possibly being part of a trade to bring Shaquille O'Neal to Miami that would have sent you elsewhere, in the last call that you had with Pat Riley um, before it happened, what do you remember the two of you talking about? I guess flattered at the time to being involved, even though it was with two other guys, but, but to being involved with a trade for, you know, the great Shaquille O'Neal. It's flattering. In a sense, I was just getting to go back home, you know, to play for the, for the other team. I got to just watch from afar and just think about how great that could be, playing for the Lakers. And, um, you know, Pat took care of me like he said he like he said he would, gave me a nice trade, kick a bonus, and, uh, and sent me on my way. It was tough, but it was a learning experience. All my experiences in the NBA were good or bad that I learned from. Kobe Bryant, uh, you said uh, about him, the two of you had basically nothing in common, came from very different backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, yet you almost immediately liked him. Why? Well, um, you know, I can respect his um, his basketball IQ, his commitment and persistence to be the best player at all times by any means necessary. His never lose mentality shows on and off the court. He had a lot on his um, on his back, you know, through his career. It was like the one that was known for you know, chasing Michael Jordan. And you said you're, you're no one to him until you prove yourself. Uh, elaborate on that, if you don't mind. Well, you have to, um, you know, being around somebody who wants to win so bad at any cost, you know, hopefully after a short period of time, some of that starts to rub off on you. And, uh, you know, I think it, it shows off in how you practice, how you approach the game, how you mentally grow. When we're together, you have to show that you're not going to make the same mistakes over and over. Uh, just by growth, I think that's how you show it. So. so the Lakers eventually end up trading you to the Dallas Mavericks, and, and you said it just kind of destroyed you mentally, and your love for the game almost vanished into thin air. What were you thinking about mentally? at that time? I think that was the lockout season. I had a really close cousin who he, he got killed that summer. And it made a lot of feelings come back, not yeah, only about him, but about other my, deaths you yeah, yeah, about my son, because I never really got to grieve over my son. Why not? I guess I didn't really want anyone to see me down, but I didn't really know how to show emotion at that time. Just playing tough for no, no apparent reason. When that was my time to be vulnerable and you know, ask people for help, and ask God to guide me. How brutal was it carrying that burden, like 
going through the pain yourself, but feeling like you had to internalize it? Well, I mean, to this day, it's still tough for me to talk about. But I mean, I think at the time, the one thing that I was able to um, lean back on is, was my faith. And just the people in my family, I had to go, go to them and realize and just tell them, do y'all realize that, you know, Jaden, he passed away the same day as my grandmother passed away? So I think in a, in, in a short term of um, dealing with things, it kind of just gave me this long-term outlook. Like maybe that's just her telling me that she has him because that, I don't know, that was a real strong spiritual connection, I think for me and for the people in my family. What is it about faith that you found has helped you through difficult times? I mean, in my life, it's really easy. If, if, if I didn't have faith or, and the people that love me didn't have faith, I probably wouldn't be here. What? Uh, when I was in that accident, I had 12 strokes and six heart attacks. So I'm, I'm told my doctors that seem like a walking miracle. I, I want to jump back to uh, when you were with the Mavericks. Um, you know, it seems like it wasn't a fun time, to say the least, just on the court. Um, what was it that the Mavs owner, Mark Cuban, did that made you feel like he resented you? No, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to say that. I don't feel like he was just resenting me. I just didn't really take too well to, for, his, um, for his antics, you know. And you're being nice in those comments. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just... His approach, you know, it's hard to get used to. I was, I was just in a, in a really um, emotional part of my life. And, and I told Mark Cuban, the place that I was in, that um, one of my closest relatives just got killed. And that really, I, I know I really wasn't in the headspace to play and perform at a high level. And I, I remember me telling him that before I got there. And what did he say? Yeah, no problem, Mark. I got you. What they all say. Tell what the situation was and how Vince Carter pretty much saved you from uh, knocking Cuban out. We were in a game against the Memphis Grizzlies, and I guess he didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't. wasn't like how I was playing. Or I guess my energy and my effort was bad. Or he got emotionally just kind of like. Kicked me in my shin, tell me like, come on, let's go, get with it. But but it was harder than. Yeah, I mean that. it was harder than yeah. what I just did. To like you. like yeah. you really felt it. Yeah, I just felt. I just took it as the ultimate sign. It's like just, you know, disrespect. Mm -hmm. And it it really was crazy. I I, I think I, it was so I was so shocked that I felt like the um, I, I turned I kind of got like the traumatized kid that. So much trauma has happened to him, like he was, a, he's able to block it out. But, 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 so you're in the situation. He kicks you. What happens from there? Like Vince is looking at me, like, like don't do it. I guess he probably saw the look on my face. I was ready to toss Mark Cuban's ass around in that locker room. But I just, I wish I was just in a, in a better um, mental headspace at that time, because probably a lot that I would have been able to learn from. You just weren't seeing eye to eye, right? Yeah, I could see why he could, you know, be upset. But I was like, I told him where my headspace was at before the season even started. I want to take you back to when you were growing up. Um, your dad, how would you say Vietnam affected him? I probably, I think, life in general. You know, I, I give him credit you know, because, of, because of, you know, my past and you know, things I've dealt with, I realized that. 
You know, addiction is a disease. When your brain is going through this disease, it's hard for you to make the best decision for yourself or the best decision for the loved ones around you. And my father, you know, experienced trauma. His, my father's father was killed, you know, by his girlfriend. I like look at some of the things he's been through. I, I realized how it took him so long to go about finding the right medicine, setting up the right program of life to um, to fight that disease or keep it dormant, dormant as much as possible. How did you see heroin affect him? I think it just made him feel. Uh, less worthy of being his best self. But that's why I always preach to my, my kids right now that, you know, learning about drugs, you know, it can be passed down genetically. I would hate for one of them to have that disease. How long did he, like, deal for, and what was he dealing back in the day? Well, he's been, he's been clean for um, about 20 years now. So, you know, I praise him for that because anyone who has that disease, you know, you could you can kill it for a little while, but it's always gonna be in you. So you wrote in your book, he left, meaning your dad, and my heart filled with hate, and yet I wanted him to love me more than I hated him. Well, just exactly what it, what it says, you know, no matter how much heart, I mean, hate that you have in you, you want him to love you more than you hate him. Um, I guess just something how I was feeling. How hard, if at all, was it at the time only seeing him, I think, like once a month? Yeah, I mean, but it's sad to say. Um, but I think I got used to it. Mm -hmm. But like I said, you know, when you when you live in and you caught in that lifestyle, you don't feel worthy of anything. So I think the only time he um, felt self-worth was when he had a couple of dollars in his pocket. So you moved with your mom back to your grandma Mildred's house. Yeah. You said that, that was the best time of your early life. Um, what was it about that? Probably just the family atmosphere at the time. My mother was, um, she's the youngest of five children. So um, I'm like the, um, the baby's baby. And I think I'm kind of still like paying for that now because I still don't know how to uh, really like make a bed <laughs> or wash clothes. Uh, I damn sure don't know how to cook anything. Well, it's pretty easy to figure out, though. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, so I add that on top of my, um, my naturally God-given ability. I'm pretty, like, spoiled with things I shouldn't know how to do for myself. Your mom, mm -hmm. a great lady. That's a fact. Um, what, what do you remember about what her job at Rikers Island entailed? Well, I knew a bit about it because um, my uncle, he was a correction officer on Rikers Island as well. I can remember my uncle taking us up there on family day just to show us the jail. And, but so my mother got the job. I mean, I was excited for her. Um, I remember she used to come in with the target practice. <laughs> I used to get real excited. And it is a job that she wanted. And as long as she was happy, I was happy. What do you think you most learned from her? 
Probably what I learned um, the most about um, from her and my grandmother, just how to be graceful. How to take your time with people. She uh, died at a young age, passed away quickly from colon cancer. You're 12. What was it about the, her final words to you uh, about being nice that really stuck with you? Just to, you know, just treat everybody with kindness. I can just remember that that day uh, really vividly. You get word that she passed, um, and you take uh, basketball, you're at home, take a basketball and leave the house. What park, do you do? I just went to the park and just shot it all day, all night, to the next morning. I think that was like the first time my grandmother like gave me the pass to just stay out all night. And I used the ball just to vent. Forget about everything. Just put me in the world. Just the ball and the basket and, and the goal. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was kind of a surreal experience as you're out on the court because as folks in the neighborhood are learning about what's happening, yeah. other people are, are coming out. What were they doing? The, the park where, where, I, where I'm from and where I live is like the center of everything. So I would like neighborhood headquarters. I guess that park and my grandmother like raised me. To be honest with you. What do you think she instilled in you? Oh, the same thing. Grace and just, you know, be kind to people and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. <laughs> uh, her and my mother both told me, like, you know, people are gonna always stare at you because you're gonna be really tall. <laughs> Fast forward to when you're in high school, mm. senior year, I think you start skipping school. The story goes, uh, your first 16 days of senior year, you attend class twice. You aren't doing any assignments. Uh, why not? Well, I was spoiled for the wrong reasons. Plus, at that time, I don't know if I'm going to the NBA or going to college. But you know what? When my mother, when my mother died, like I was like really just like, man, f school. You were. Yeah, I didn't really. I don't think I applied myself in school after that um, for whatever reasons. And you know, then I had basketball that kind of just kind of like got me past. How much, if at all, do you regret, looking back, not uh, applying yourself more in no, school? I mean, I really regret it now, because I'm going to be out of the NBA much longer than I was ever going to be in the NBA. You made the point in your book that, you know, if, you, if something confused you or um, you weren't sure of something, there was an alternative path that was always created for you by somebody that had a stake in your future. Um, the SATs being a, a good example of that. Explain what happened on that front. Well, I mean, I just listened to the wrong people at that time, and, and because of my um, my lack of trying in the, in, a, in, in the high school classroom, they thought that it would be better if you know they got someone to take my SAT, which is really like a slap in the face. But at the time, I didn't see it as so. I was just like, the hell with it. How did you realize that there's a problem? I mean, I didn't really realize until the dude scored too high. 
<laughs> really? Yeah, I mean, according to like where where my grades were at, there was no way they felt like I could have got a test score that high. You said when uh, the UNLV scholarship was rescinded, it was one of the darkest days of your life. Um, what about it made it that way? Here I am, the number one, number two player in the country, and I have a place to go to school. You know, but I had um, a couple of people that still really cared about me and kind of opened all those passions. But, but when you find out that you lost a scholarship, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you're in your apartment, lights are out, and you stay there for a long time, right? Yeah, I had to get things together and find out at that time exactly who had my best interests. I mean, it's funny, I think at, at, at 40 years old, I'm probably still still trying to search for and from, I guess, who's trying to, who really gives a about me and who doesn't. How, how many people in your life do you think are in it for, like, genuinely the right reasons? I'm gonna say maybe five. And the ones that are not, I don't hold it against them. Man, I mean, hey, look, five quality people would be amazing for anybody to have, you know, who you know you can count on and there when the going gets tough. Yeah. So there's this scholarship issue, figuring out what you want to do, need kind of a night to just go out and unwind. Uh, you borrow a UNLV Boosters uh, car, a guy that was a dentist oh, who took yeah. a liking to you. What ends up happening? Oh, you're talking about the time I tried to pick up the hooker? And at that age, out of all the things that, you know, that I, I had to be in a, uh, in a paper for, and I think that probably was like my, the most embarrassing thing that I had that I knew like my grandmother was gonna read. I mentioned to you b before the interview that I, I read your book and, and loved it because... Some, you know, but sometimes with that damn book, I, I can't... I'm, I must have been in a real vulnerable place. I mean, it's true, but it's, it's really raw. And some of the things I wish I, I, wish I would have left out of that book, I'm ashamed of. Like, I don't want my kids to read that and Be not playing in the NBA, you know, for, for a much longer time than I'm be playing. I would love a, a job in the basketball world. Mm -hmm. I gotta think, like, writing a book that's so brutally honest with those same people in the basketball world hire me after reading a book like that? I would think so, because, I'm you know, sure. you... Some, you could say, yeah, but then, you know, it's devil's advocate reason for that, you, that I can give you to say, hell no. You come to Miami, you get a new place. Tell about the, the uh, backyard barbecue that quickly got out of hand. I wish I could um, sit back and replay all the, all the fun moments for you. But, um, you know, I've been through a lot. And ever since the accident, it's been hard for me to, like, um, I, don't, I didn't really feel like any effects physically from it. Mm -hmm. But I would think cognitively, I feel the most effect. So excuse me if you if I can't really like recall. I feel like I'm like a poster child for Alzheimer's. Really, uh, sh short and long term. It's just that bad. What sorts of things are difficult to remember? Where's the remote? Where I put my keys at? 
Where's my wallet? Like, I'll check for my, I'll check for my wallet. Like, Thirty times. After checking, like after just like knowing, I just put it in my, just put it in my coat, just put it in my coat. But I mean, I you know I got to um, just realize that my body really went through a lot. What have the doctors told you about that? Like, will the memory um, get better or um, worse? Well, I or? think I think it's I think it get better. I think there's, there's um, ways I can like just take the bulls by the horn and just seek out some cognitive, some cognitive therapy on my mm -hmm. own. I want to take you to 2012, Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel after midnight. Set the scene and take it. Take the story from hearing the pounding on the door. Yeah, I mean that was um, another embarrassing moment I put myself in. And you're in the room with who at the time? Um, I think it was some strippers and some, and uh, I think that's when Chloe came. Yeah, I think she wound up getting into it with them. I mean, just really embarrassed. Just even, it's embarrassing just talking to you about it right now. Why? You ever got caught in that position? Probably not. <laughs> no. But you can, you can, you can, I guess you can guess why. You talked about like how like sex. I mean, you've been obsessed with it for as long as you can remember. When you were speaking about it, you said, you know, you've like well, more I've, obsessed with it than the average person. I think I probably was at one point in my life probably addicted to sex. When you you know you put sex before things that really matter. Like what? Breathing or living life or being present. And I think, um, you know, through all my struggles with addictions and the great thing about overcoming them and putting them in your rearview mirror and putting God first is that you're always present. You hold yourself accountable. You hold those around you more accountable when you're present. Like when, you, when you're getting high and you're like trying to numb pain and taking yourself away from that present state. Small term decisions can make long term effects. Can have a long term effect. Like what? You know, like not seeing your children. You should never be uncomfortable in any type of setting around your own children. Mm -hmm. Or not spending time with, the, with your loved ones. Because you gotta hide the fact that you're, you know, not living life the right way. How do you view monogamy? I think it's important. I never thought it was important before. What do you think made you realize it was important? Well, when you can grow with someone and you realize you're growing with them and you're not having sex. Yeah. And it's crazy because the next time I'm having, next time I have sex, I'll be married, so. Really? Yeah. Why is that? My fiance said you shouldn't have sex until you get married. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, well, if you're gonna talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk, right? How hard is that for you? I mean, well, you're looking to someone who just like realized not too long ago, like I'm an official sex addict. So me and my me and my girl we went to a, we went to a meeting with a friend. 
And these people, like, they're giving their testimonies. And I'm like, damn, that sound like me. I could just found so many similarities in these people and their, um, this disease that they're fighting. Why, when you were talking about that in, in your book, was it important to you um, to talk about abortions, not using protection, um, that that sort of thing? Sometimes when, you, uh, when you're young and you're, uh, and you're having sex with these women, you, know, you don't really understand the consequence of repercussions of having sex how a girl could feel connected to you, like, spiritually and physically. And I guess that was just my way of, um, I guess, saying sorry to all of them. By putting it in the book? Yeah, that I didn't come through for. And so I think, um, as I get older and, and I put, you know, that feeling in action, it's almost easier for me to stay away from sex and, Porn. You and your fiance spoke about that as well. You mentioned being in the meeting and you're kind of uh, nudging her that you felt like you were addicted to porn. Um, yeah. What what made you come to that realization? Well, it's crazy that I didn't come to that realization earlier, but or like in the, I'll give you a funny example in the NBA. Mm -hmm. Like, if you late for the bus or whatever, you know, they just find you. And I think about all the money that I wasted just from, like, having to get one more scene in. Or, so I know I had to be addicted even way before I knew I was addicted. Because your fiancé said there were times where You'd want to grab your phone and oh, instead yeah, of be touching in, her. Yeah, I'll be in bed with the, but, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> so I think about all the women that just let me get away with stuff like that. It's crazy. Totally disrespectful. And the fiancé wouldn't have any of that? No. Hmm. How, how do you um, get over that um, in terms of the porn addiction? Well, be careful of your, your, your surroundings. Um, but we got a, um, we got an app on our phone. It's through a company called Covenant Eyes. Okay. So if I like, choose to watch porn and try to get it on my phone, she'll be alerted. <laughs> so that in and of itself makes you think twice before I mean, I don't, want do. to, I don't want to lose her to watching porn. I want to uh, talk to you some about uh, drugs and how you came through on the other side of the uh, addiction. But it, it first um, starts with, I believe, a Miami hotel, the Shore Club. Mm -hmm. um, tell about what you remember from your first experience with cocaine. Well, I, I remember it felt um, like sort of like orgasmic a little bit. But that's the one thing about drugs is that um, like you chase the dragon. And anything that you become addicted to, you're kind of looking for that first fulfillment of like the first time you tried it, the first time you had it. It's never going to feel like that again. How about last time you used uh, cocaine? 
I mean, I can't even remember. How, how hard was that? What, to give it up? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, 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 easy. It's, it's easy to be, like, you know, when you, I don't want to worry about the last thing I did with somebody and, like, doing a drug like that. It would take all the fun to be out of it because I'd be extremely paranoid. Who's seen me? Who's telling on me? You know what I mean? It's just, like, it's way too much to even go down that road again. So the last one in terms of stories was about the Love Ranch. How I fell into a coma. Mm -hmm. It's crazy because I, when I woke up, I was really confused because I know I didn't OD that night. I, I didn't sniff nothing that night. I didn't, I damn sure didn't shoot nothing in my veins or anything like that. So I don't even know how they got it in me. But I do realize that it was um, drugs found in my system. But I didn't do any drugs that night. That's my, you know, honest to God, truth. Why do you feel so certain about that when you said, you, you know, the memory's not as good? I mean, well, I think I would know what happened that night. If that's the case, then this whole interview was bullshit, right? So when I, when I woke up, they were like, you know, you overdosed. I'm like, overdosed for what? But I mean, I mean, I don't, so I don't really remember anything. I was. Sleep. Why did the doctors tell people gathered at the hospital uh, to prepare their last words to you? Because I was gone. I was dead. What do you think changed in terms of why you were able to get through it, defying what the doctors thought was going to happen? Divine intervention, bro. I don't know. <clears throat> I guess it just wasn't my time. I don't know. Maybe I'm here to um, share my story with people. I was trying to overcome loss. And maybe overcome addiction. Speak my truth. Maybe to help people. What did the recovery process entail? Took a lot of therapy. When I woke up, I couldn't walk or talk. Like I would, I could think of, say, "Hello, Graham." It's hard for me to explain like how that works. It seems like so far, right? Like, what you mean you can't talk? Talking seems normal as an adult. Right. I could walk. I could try to take a step, fall down. Couldn't hold my bowels, which is extremely. Um, Humbling, you know. I'm a big, strong athlete. My pants every night. Because you can think, why me? But you can't really ask that question. Why me? And so just, just to put myself in a position and my thoughts where I wouldn't like ask myself that question and beat myself up about it. What was your lowest point during that whole recovery process? Maybe like after the first week of, of doing rehab where I was just, you know, had it, had it made, in my, it made up in my mind that, you know, you know, you can't turn back now. How long did it take the total process? I think, I think I'm really still going through it. How so? Like maybe just more mentally. Like there were some things on the basketball court that I had that was so natural to me that I don't have anymore. Why do you think that is? 
like, I don't know. It could be a lesson in life. How much credit do you give to Chloe for um, the role that she played in the well, recovery I'm, process and, you know, when you were in the hospital? I mean, she was there for me and helping me um, you know, get my memory back and help wiping my backside, things like that when I was really weak. But I'd be a fool to give her any of, um, any of God's credit, you know? I mean, she didn't bring me up out of 12 heart attacks and six strokes, you know, six, 12 strokes and six heart attacks. She didn't have nothing to do with healing me from that. But after I woke up, you know, she was supportive. You've talked about separation, anxiety, d depression, things like that uh, over the years. Um, how much of a difference did it make to you uh, getting professional help? I think I'm still like pretty much doing that. Whenever I tell my story, it works as a form of therapy for me. Does it? Yeah, I feel lighter. And just don't feel like anything can hold me back. Feel less shameless, shameful. Feel a little bit more proud. I think maybe because so many people have written things about me before that were totally off. You know, when somebody tells a story about you, it kind of takes the power of you telling your story away from you a little bit. And so I just found, you know, the power of telling my story on my terms, the way I want to tell it. I think that's important for everyone to, you know, find that voice to um, speak their truth. Fatherhood. Where do you prioritize being a dad today? I wish I would have found this out um, a long time ago. But fatherhood means a lot to me because um, no matter through my you know mistakes, I'm, I'm still trying. So I'm still trying to be the best me and uh, making up for all the time that I missed out with my kids, um, whether it be through um, contractual agreements or my addiction, but just being the best me. And uh, I know whenever I, um, I'm in my practice of fatherhood, then I'm in, I'm in the practice of me being my best me. What's involved with uh, getting through with your kids? Any challenges that well, just, have been created well, from just, the issues? Just by spending time. Um, Being transparent with them as much as possible. Me still being um, pretty youthful and having youth on my side is, there's always um, room to um, close that bridge between uh, me and my children. How old are the kids? My daughter's 21 and my son is 18. So that's the blessing of having children young. What do you want for your kids? Financial stability and happiness, and for them to love their father and love whoever's around them, whoever's nur nurturing them, whoever's showing them the way.
What do you want for yourself? <sighs> Same thing. Tons of money, my girl, a boat, a jet. <laughs> <laughs> All the stuff that, um, that treat, people try to um, buy for happiness. I want to um, also my relationship um, with God to grow. I want to walk with the Lord. Um, how about uh, personal and professional goals for yourself? Well, I got a lot of making up to do. Meaning what? Um, financially. But, but, but everything financially with me is okay, but of course it could always be better from a businessman perspective. I just want to be happy, man. That's it. I want my kids to be happy. Wake up, no worries. You mentioned telling your stories is kind of therapeutic. But what would you want somebody listening or watching your story to take away from it as a lesson? Oh, don't be scared. And um, you should live your life, but live, it to, live to learn. You know what I'm saying? Cherish every day that you have, because it can be your last. And that sounds like some just some generic bull but it really could. Um, keep the ones that, you know, love you for you, close to you. I think sometimes on, a, on our um, path to success, it's easy to get um, side-blinded or for us to um, forget about the people in our life that really matter. How about the uh, worst financial decision you ever made and what you learned from that? I was in the club with, with my, in Miami with my, 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 uh, my great late friend. His name was Rasul Butler. And it was, it was Rasul's birthday. And so when we go out, we like to drink. You know, we drink a Namo at Rosé. And this football player like, sitting like, right in front of us, him and his guy, they drinking Ace of Spades. And he said, yo, hello. Step your game up. We're not my whole manhood. So I told the waiter, I said, yo, come here. I said, I need 100 bottles of my wet rosé. <laughs> but I said, 10, I want you to bring 10 now and then give 10 to these Puerto Rican kids. So now I'm just going to assassinate his whole look that he got going on because I'm going to get the kids that he's sitting right next to. 10 bottles of my wet rosé, and I'm out to drink with them. F him. And so that's 20. So I said, the next 30, give them out some 40, 50. And so I got this whole, like, little dark VIP section. That was, like, about, like, 70 bottles. Then I got to, like, the 80 bottle. I told them, hand them out in the crowd, then bring the last 20 right back here. <laughs> that's probably my worst. How much did that cost? Probably like 120k, and that was all done. <laughs> but I mean, I, I did it. I, no, I did it for pride and for foolish pride, I guess that was. What did uh, Jay Z once tell you when you brought up starting a record label, and how would that have um, would that advice have saved you from? Yeah, he uh, was like, um, Nah, he was like, Nah, you want to be like magic. And, you going this way, you want to go 
that way. You're going that way. He said, yeah, we're going to real estate. And, and you thought he was no, discouraging thought, you because he didn't no, I mean, win competition? I, yeah, the rapper that I had was, was so gifted. But I, I was foolish then. I couldn't really get to see that. He was trying to just help a young man out. If you, and if you had taken Jay-Z's advice, how much would that have saved you? Mm, probably a couple million dollars. A couple million dollars? Mm -hmm. What advice would you give, you know, if you were starting your NBA career over, what financial advice um, would, would I give the Lamar Odom of today give the Lamar Odom just entering the league? No should be your favorite word. Because if you tell somebody no, then you're really going to realize how they really feel about you. Or if your relationship got room to grow, or it can grow at all. Because if you tell somebody, you know, yes, 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 they become self, you know, depending on you. They ain't going to know how to take a no. And you got to really stand firm on your no. And when it comes to money and savings now, what's Same your view on it? Same thing. The answer is no. Thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you, brother. Thanks for listening to my chat with Lamar Odom. To see video clips from our time together, including a trip to the famous Venice Beach basketball courts, head to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And before you go, please leave us a rating and review. We're always eager to hear your thoughts. And thanks again for listening.